my name is Kiana Stoltzfus, and I'm a member here at the Heights. We're going to spend time in God's Word together now. Today's teaching comes from Luke 15, 11 through 32 in the Bible. The large numbers are chapters, and the small numbers are verses. Let's hear what God has to speak to us today. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country. He sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with the feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat that I could celebrate with my friends. When his son, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us the gift of your word. We ask that you speak clearly to us through it today. Help us to not just listen, but to truly obey it for our joy and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Let's give it up for Kiana. Thank you, Kiana, uh, for reading God's word for us. Uh, well, good morning. Uh, so glad to be back with you guys. Uh, I really miss you guys. Wow, thank you. That, that's, really, that's really kind. It really is. Uh, it really is. I'll, uh, I'll just say this. I really, I'm not taking today, uh, being here today for granted. You know, it's, um, it's been almost a month. Uh, since I've been here uh, to teach God's word to you, and uh, for a number of just tough circumstances, about a month ago I had a really sudden and tragic death in my extended family, and uh, I had to fly back for a funeral uh, that I, you know, wasn't foreseen at all. And then my family and I get back, and all four of us uh, uh, test positive for COVID, and so it's just been kind of in my life one thing after the other. And so I certainly uh, don't take uh, being here with you in, in person uh, for granted. For the last couple of weeks, uh, for the last few weeks, really, I've been attending online, which no offense to those of you watching me from a camera right now, but that is terrible. Uh, and uh, and uh, it's not like being in the room. And so I am, uh, I'm really glad to be in the room and open up God's uh, word with you. I really did uh, miss you guys. It's a, it, it made me just like, 
I just love doing this. I just love teaching God's word to you guys and love what I get to do. So uh, with that being said, grab a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 15. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, you can grab one out of the chair back in front of you. You can open, find Luke 15, ask somebody next to you, help, help me find it. There's no shame in that. Uh, you can take that as a gift uh, from us to you. Um, uh, and uh, we have two more leaks, like Jonathan said, left in our Apostles' Creed series before we dive into uh, my favorite time of the year, and that is Advent, where we start lighting Advent candles. We're going to be in the first couple chapters of Luke, which I'm really excited about. We're going to hear Mariah Carey everywhere we go. You're going to be wandering through Nordstrom's, like doing Christmas shopping. If you still go to Nordstrom's, I don't know, maybe you do all your Christmas shopping on Amazon and you don't hear Mariah Carey. You can turn Mariah Carey on Spotify, get on Amazon, and just like get all the, all the Advent feels uh, if Mariah carry and Advent go together, but um, anyways, we've got two more weeks left, this week and next week, to finish out our fall teaching series, and uh, if today's your first day uh, joining us, I'll just catch you up really briefly. Uh, we've spent our whole fall, uh, since September, working line by line through something called the Apostles' Creed, using it to guide our study of the Bible. Here's what the Creed is. The Creed is a short, memorable summary of the historic Orthodox Christian faith that the global church has used as a summary of the faith for 1,600 years. That's a really long time. This is kind of like crosses all denominational lines, every Orthodox, historically rooted, Bible-rooted Orthodox Christian, sorry, I said Orthodox twice, it's Orthodoxy is a big deal to us, has believed the creed. Okay, and so that's what the creed is. It's just a short, memorable summary of the core teachings of the Christian faith. So each week, uh, we've taken a line from the creed and allowed it to push us back to the Bible and study where that line comes from and what it means for our life. Now, here is today's line. We'll go ahead and put it up here on the screen. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And, uh, you know, if that sinks in with you, you go, thank God we believe that. Thank God we believe that. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now, this week's a little bit different than the weeks uh, leading up as we've been journeying through the creed. You know, most of the, most of the previous weeks have kind of met us first in the head. Um, this week meets us in the heart. Okay, mo other weeks kind of like leading up, we've, we've unpacked some kind of like weird things that we don't talk a lot about. We're like, oh, Jesus descended to hell, and we talked about that, and we're like, what does that mean? And we, we were like, we wrestled with that, and, and we talked about the virgin birth, and we kind of stepped aside and asked this question, how exactly was Jesus conceived? You know, let's talk about that, and we, and we unpacked that. And most of these things have met us in the head, uh, but this one meets us in kind of a more sensitive place. It meets us in the heart. Uh, this, this teaching and this passage that, where Jesus gives this teaching on the forgiveness of sins, he, uh, he's really meeting us in these kind of deeper, hidden places in our lives of, of shame and guilt and maybe religious exhaustion. Uh, that's where this teaching uh, meets us. It doesn't meet us in the head, but it meets us more in the heart. Now, if there are two words that stand at the heart of today, uh, they're the words reframe and reinvite. Today is all about a reframe and a reinvitation. So, first, reframe. The passage that we're going to study, what Kiana read for us, this really famous passage that most people call the parable of the prodigal son, this passage is a teaching that Jesus gives on the forgiveness of sins. And the point of Jesus giving this teaching to his original audience was to reframe for them how they thought about God and forgiveness and how God relates to us and how all of that works. It's just this teaching of Jesus is just a total reframe. But the purpose of the reframe is not just intellectual stimulation, but it's invitation. 
Let me say that again. The purpose of the reframe is not intellectual stimulation, it's invitation. So the purpose of this this teaching that Jesus gives is not for us to sit here today and leave today and go, wow, that's really cool to think about God like that. No, the purpose of this reframe is invitation into life with the living God. I think what God has for us today out of this passage is to meet us, to meet you and me in some of the really tender spots of shame that we carry around or guilt because of the bad things that we've done or the good things that we haven't done or maybe even the religious exhaustion that we that we enter in here with trying to be good people but not really feeling good enough and what Jesus wants to do is he wants to reframe what life with him is all about reframe how we think about God and then reinvite us into the forgiveness and freedom from it all reframe and reinvite what we're going to do is I'm going to teach you the parable, and we're going to dive deep into the parable, and then we're going to back up, and we're just going to, we're going to bring this parable into life, and we're going to walk through our four ca- categories of clarity, balance, counsel, and reorientation. So first, the parable, okay? We're going to dig deep into the parable. Now, we're going to be in the parable for a while, because there's a whole lot going in on this parable. So I, I, what, I want you to encourage, what I want to encourage you to do is take a deep breath and say to yourself silently, I'm going to pay attention the whole time. Okay, because we got a lot going on in this parable, and I just want I just want to highlight all of the rich things that are going on. So here's how I want to teach the parable. Um, I want to do it by character study. We've got three characters in this uh, passage. We've got two lost sons. I want to call the sons the two lost sons with the same problem. Okay, two lost sons with the same problem. So we're going to look at the two sons, uh, the younger and the older son, and then I want to and then I want to at the end of teaching the parable, I want to look at what, who I think is the main character, and that's the father. Everyone. In my opinion, we get this backwards. This is not the parable of the prodigal son. It's the parable of, like, the amazing father, okay? And he's the main character. So I want to teach this by uh, character study, all right? So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the two lost sons with the same problem. Two lost sons with the same problem. So first, we, we start with the younger son. We start with the younger son. Most people, like I said, call this the parable of the prodigal son. And they think that the main character in this story that Jesus gives is the younger son. But actually, in order of importance, he's probably the third most important character um, whenever it comes to studying this parable. So we'll start with him. Uh, The best way, this is kind of how I would summarize the best way to think about the younger son. The best way to think about the younger son is that he's just like the classic sinner. Okay? He just like makes a total mess of his life. He blows it, he does all of the terrible things, and like, you're like, yeah, when you read about his life, you're like, if there is a God, that guy needs to be forgiven, okay? That's how we, that's how we read uh, the younger son. So let's dive in, and I just want to get this story into us, I want to highlight some of the things, so let's just walk back through the story uh, that Jesus tells, starting in verse 11, it says this, he, Jesus, also said, and then he launches into this parable, a parable, by the way, is just an earthly story about a heavenly reality, Okay? A parable is an earthly story about a heavenly reality. So this is Jesus giving us a story to teach us about what God is like and life with God is like. So Jesus also said, and then he dies in the story, a man had two sons. So this is why we call it the parable of the two sons with the same problem, okay? Highlighting the differences between these two sons. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. Give me my inheritance. I just want it now. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had, and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. He's a fool. He's just like, he takes all the money that's his inheritance, and he spends it now. He's like, oh yeah, he's living the high life. You know, he's, 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 he's living great. 
but he's a fool. After he had spent everything, fool, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now, this is the lowest of the low, okay? He's out in the field feeding pigs. He's starving. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. So he's finding himself in this low place. I love this line at the beginning of verse 17. We're going to come back to this later and talk about what it looks like to come to our senses. Uh, But it says this, when he came to his senses, so returning to God has something to do with common sense. That's That's what that tells us. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and he went to his father. Now, we'll stop right there for just a second. Notice what the, son, the younger son is expecting. He's blown it. Like I said, he's the classic sinner. He's done all of the classic bad things, you know. It's like, oh yeah, he needs to to be forgiven. What he thinks when he returns to his father is that he's going to get kind of like a wagging finger and a guilt trip. And then his dad's not going to treat him like a son anymore. He's like, maybe he'll just treat me like one of his servants because his servants have have it better than I have it now. But what we find when he comes home is that his father just treats him totally different than what he expects. This is Jesus reframing how we imagine God to be when we blow it. Okay, that's what's going on in this story. Now, watch, watch how the father reacts. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him. That's like what fathers do to sons. The son said to him, here's his humility, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe. This is not how you treat a servant. Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine, not the servant, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So with the younger son, we get this incredible story of grace and forgiveness that's meant to show us how God relates to us when we blow it. Okay, that's the point of this. In the beginning of the story, the younger son comes to his dad and his heart's full of, these are two important words, so much self-interest and greed. Okay, these are the two basic problems in both sons that I'm going to highlight. Full of so much self-interest and greed. He, he comes to the father, he says, I don't even care about you, I just want your stuff. At the heart of the problem of the younger son is, pay attention to this, he wants the father's stuff but not the father. He's like, I just want your stuff, man. I don't care if you die. I just want my inheritance that's coming to me. And his dad loves him. He gives it to him, and he blows it in the most classic spiral of life story. Prostitutes, gambling, debt. And it ruins his life. It ruins his life. Um, And when he finds himself at rock bottom, uh, he has an idea. Verse 17 says he came to his senses. He's like, wait a second. I I got a reason here about my life. And he decides to return to the father, and he thinks he's going to be treated like a servant, but he's surprised by the forgiveness and grace that's extended to him. 
And I don't want you to miss this in the story. And instead of shaming him and giving him a lecture about his sin and all of the bad things that he's done and how, you know, I think what you, what you can see kind of coming in the story, comparing him to the older son who's been kind of a little, good little boy, being like, your brother's been better. He doesn't do any of that. He welcomes him with a hug. He shows him affection. He speaks words of affection over him. And he welcomes him back in. And he throws a party. Now, for the context of the story going forward with the older son, one of the things you need to realize about this party is that this party that the father throws is monetarily extravagant, okay? Money, I actually am really interested, I think that this is also a teaching Jesus does on money, but I'm not teaching it from that perspective, but uh, it's a big, money, the deceptiveness of money plays a big role in this whole story, okay? Uh, And you'll see that. The party that he throws is monetarily extravagant. The dad was throwing down some cash on this party, okay? He comes, the the son comes home, he dresses him really well. It says that he puts jewelry on his son, that's that's money. Uh, He puts sandals on his feet, that's money. And then he says, hey, kill the fattened calf. In those days, uh, they wouldn't have eaten meat except for at like the best of parties, okay? Because meat was very expensive. It was an extravagant thing, kind of like laid aside for celebrations. And the father doesn't say, hey, just kill any meat like a goat. The father says, kill the fattened calf. That was like the wagyu of the day, okay? That's like the, that's the good stuff, all right? It's the good stuff. Bring the fattened calf because my son was dead and alive. I'm throwing, I'm throwing down the money. This is it. The whole village would have come. So he's feeding everybody. And he's celebrating the return of the sinful and lost son into the home of the father. This is a big celebration. Now, we'll talk more about this in a few minutes. But that's where most people stop the story. Right? And uh, this turns into this teaching that is true. Okay? And I'm going to highlight some of this later. Um, that, you know, if you're like the younger son and you've blown it and your life is in shambles, you can return to God the Father and the amazing thing is that you won't receive shame in a lecture but grace and celebration. And that's true. Like, this is one of the things that makes Christianity amazing is that that's true. It's this wild reality in Christianity that's so radically different than what people think Christianity is all about that there's nothing you can do that will disqualify you from the love of the Father. That like nothing you can do can prevent you from coming back home and receiving welcome, affection of the Father, forgiveness, and all of that's true. It's this amazing truth at Christianity. And we're going to lean into that here in just a little bit. Um, But it's not the whole point of this parable. Okay, it's not the whole point of this parable. In fact, it, I don't know, I don't know when I overstate this, but it might not even be the main point of this parable. Uh, I have a lot of reasons for saying that that I won't unpack today. Um, but the reason it's not the whole point of this parable is because there's, an, there's another son that we, need to, that we need to pay attention to. There's the older son. Now, his older son was in the field, so he's being faithful to his dad. He's out working for his dad. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants questioning what these things meant. Hey, what's the, what, you know, what's the party all about? And the servant gives the good news. This is really good news that families should be excited about. Your brother's here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the because he has him back safe and sound. And this is where it turns. Then he became angry. 
big part of the older son is uh, anger and bitterness and jealousy. It's a big part of his life. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in, so his father came out. Notice the father's pursuit still of the older son. So his father came out and pleaded with him. Son, come back. Come into the party. But he replied to his father, look, dad, I've been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. I was out in the field, and here you are partying. Yet, you never gave me a goat. That's why I highlighted the meat. Goat is a lesser meat. You never even gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, notice he doesn't call him his brother. He's just like anger, jealousy, bitterness, hatred, envy. He's just full of it. And his years of duty have formed him into that. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and this is a key line, everything I have is yours. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead. The father reminds him, this is your brother. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. All right, now, I don't know if you've ever had a fight with your family, um, and sorry to take you into that like really tough spot, uh, but I don't know if you've ever had a fight with your family, the last fight you had with your family. Well, all of the emotions that you felt in that moment of having the fight with your family, kind of like the rising anger, the feeling of like being misunderstood, the feeling like you're not understanding what I'm trying to say, and you know, you know all of those things, frustration with uh, the family member, uh, I don't know the last thing, the last time that you had that. Well, all of the emotions that you felt in that are what are bubbling up here in this scene. This is a tense and a sad family fight. And the thing that we're supposed to start to notice is that the younger brother is in a celebration and the older brother is in a fight. The older brother is out in the field working and he hears music and dancing and he comes back to the house. He pulls one of the servants aside and he asks him, hey, what's going on? What's the big deal with the celebration? And the servant tells him the good news about the brother. The, the servant thinks like, hey, your brother, you should be excited about this. He tells him the good news about the brother. And it's when the older brother hears this news that the real posture of his heart is exposed. The passage says that he gets really angry and he refuses to go into the party to celebrate his brother. Now his dad comes out, you know, the older brother's causing a scene. His dad comes out and he pleads with him, son, just come into the party, come and celebrate. But he still refuses. And in his refusal, he starts to highlight what he's really mad about. Now this is interesting to see. He's mad about the financial cost of the party. He says, Dad, I've been with you forever, and you haven't even killed the cheaper meat, a goat. You know, he highlights a goat. You haven't even killed a goat to celebrate me, let alone the most expensive thing, the fattened calf. 
And the father responds with this line, son, you're always with me. And this is an important line, everything I have is yours. Now that line, everything I have is yours, that line is literally true. When the younger son went away, he got his full inheritance and he blew it all, right? We read that earlier in the story, he blew it all. So literally, everything that the father has is part of the older son's inheritance. That's literally true. Everything is his. And in this moment, all the older son can see is his inheritance being blown to celebrate that unfaithful, sinful son. And he stands his ground in bitterness, jealousy, envy, and anger. He stands his ground, and he refuses to come into the party. So we said in the beginning of the two sons that these are two lost sons with the same problem. In the parable, we get two sons, one good, good, one bad, but both ultimately alienated from the father, okay? That's what we're supposed to see, both ultimately alienated, alienated from the father. And at the core of it, they both want the father's things, but not the father himself. Both of their hearts are full of self-interest and greed. I just want the father's things. I don't care about the father. They have both been using the father to get the things they really want and really love. One did it by being bad, and the other did it by being good. And the point of Jesus giving us this story is to show us that there are two ways to sin. There are two ways of rejecting God, two ways to miss the love of the Father, two ways to miss out on Jesus and his kingdom. You can miss it through your sinful badness, sure, everybody knows that. It's like, every preacher like me is talking about that. But did you know that you can also miss it through your self-righteous goodness too? Jesus is showing us that there are two ways of running away from our need for grace and forgiveness. In the words of Tim Keller, you can run from your need for God as much through morality and religion as you can through immorality and irreligion. In other words, like the older son, you can use your goodness and religious performance as a cover for a greedy and self-interested heart, and in the sight of God, it is no different than the one that just shows their greed and self-interest by living it up. It's a matter of the heart. Both of the brothers are lost. Both of the brothers need the forgiveness of the Father. In the middle of this, we have our main character, the uh, consistent and forgiving Father. This is the main character. You just see, if you read the story through this lens, you see the Father's there all along, just kind of being the same person. You have the consistent and the loving Father. And the thing I love about the Father in this story who clearly represents God and how he relates to us, is that he doesn't respond like we would expect him to. He's just, he just shatters every category we have for what God is like and how God interacts with us. It's like when the younger son comes back home, he doesn't shame him and give him a lecture. That's, that's, a, that's, a, uh, that's a reframe. When the older son comes back and he's mad about his younger brother, he doesn't go, oh yeah, you're right, you're the good one. Get out of here to the younger son. He doesn't do that. He just, the father just consistently shatters every category that most people have for how we think about Christianity, for how we think about God. He's just totally different in the best way. 
The thing that I love about him in this story is that Jesus shows us that God is just remarkably steady and consistent in the ways that he approaches both sons who are rebelling against him in hateful self-interest and greed in their differing ways. And his interactions with both of them are marked by these things like pursuit. Notice in the story, like, when he sees the younger son, he, it says that he literally runs to him. He runs to him. He doesn't wait for the son to come and, like, grovel in his shame and be like, yeah, that's right. He runs to him and embraces him. The old, he, he pursues the older son in the same way. He leaves the party. He comes outside where the older son is kind of just making a scene, you know. I'm not going in there. That, that brother, you know, he's making, and he comes out and he pursues the older son and he goes, come into the party, come into the party. You want to come into the party. Pursuit, love, patience, second chances. He's so full of second chances and grace and forgiveness and ultimately invitation back into his love and care. And what Jesus is doing is he's reframing for us what God is like and he's re-inviting us no matter which side of that we fall in back into the loving arms of the Father. A reframe and a re-invitation. And then what was probably, this is where we'll wrap the story up and we'll start to bring it into life and show us what Jesus is doing here. And what was probably the most shocking thing to the original hearers of this parable is that it ends before it's resolved. We, we, we like fairy tale endings where it's like, you know, and then, you know, you know, the older son came back in and happily ever after. And that is not what happens in this story. The story, and this would have been very shocking to the original hearers who were very religious Jews. So they're kind of, they're the older brothers. Jesus is speaking this parable to a bunch of older brothers, okay? Um, we don't know what happens with the older brother, but it seems like he refuse, refuses to reconcile and go into the party, and in turn, he misses out on the love of the Father. And as Jesus is standing there telling this parable to his religious, heavily Jewish audience, you can imagine their feelings. They're like, whoa, 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 wait. Total reframe. The bad one gets in. And the good, morally upright one doesn't. And Jesus goes, that's right. That's right. Jesus is showing them, and he's showing us, that God and the forgiveness of God and how all of that works is completely different than what we think. Completely different than what we think. Now, this teaching that Jesus gives on the forgiveness of sins does four things for us. First, it brings clarity. It brings clarity. This is where I want to go after reframing how we imagine God to be and how he relates to us. Ultimately, in this parable, we get two different visions for how we relate to God and how God relates to us. One we will call religion, and the other we will call the gospel. And we're going to use these two categories for the rest of our time. One we will call religion, and the other we will call the gospel. And the goal of this is to reframe us away from, or re-invite, uh, invite us away from religion and invite us into the gospel. So let me tease this out. In the older son, we get a vision of religion. Okay, in the older son, we get a vision of religion. The older son is morally upright and good, and he thinks that because of all of his good works and faithfulness and fulfilling of duty to the father, that the father owes him love and sal salvation and celebration, right? And it, ultimately what you see is that the older son is trying to control the father by his good works. 
Here's how he thinks. Hey, I did all of these good things. The father owes me good things. That's the spirit of the older son. That's the spirit of religion. I did all of these good things. The father owes me good things. For, the, for us, we think, about, uh, we think this is how our life with God works. We obey and therefore we're accepted and things will go well for us. But when we do bad, God gets mad and then he kind of like punishes us by being like mean and we trip on something and go, oh, I must have done something bad. This is like, this is karma. And it's just like, it's not that. He's just saying it's not that. I'll give you a, I'll give you a really ridiculous example uh, from my life of how <laughs> I, I've seen this in my life. And I still see this play out all the time. I'll give you two examples, actually. Uh, one's from when I was in high school. If you, if you know me, you've heard me teach, you know that I love golf. It's like, I love golf. I love everything about golf. I watch PGA Tour. I love to play golf. I love chipping the golf ball in my backyard by myself into a little net. I, uh, I, I'm asking for Christmas for this little putting thing for my house. Like, I just love it. I'm the one that, like, on the Golf Channel, they have this show called Golf Central that's news about golf. I watch that, okay? And that's how, like, deep into this I am. It's lame. It's so lame. Um, but when I was in high school, I remember, I just remember this so vividly, um, and uh, I remember I was like getting into golf. I was really falling in love, falling in love with it. And, uh, and I would think if I was playing golf that day, I would think, okay, I got to get it together. I got to like not do the bad stuff. I got to make sure I do the good stuff. So I got to read my Bible today because I really need God to bless my golf game today, you know? <laughs> and I, I like, I, if I, you know, if I, if I do good and I, and I don't do bad and like I read my Bible, spend a little time in prayer, you know, and try to hold the door for somebody and, then, like, God's going to bless me. Do you know what that is? That's the spirit of the older son. That's the spirit of the That's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous example of a religious heart. Um, I'll give you another example. Yesterday, I was, in, uh, I was in line at Chick-fil-A, one of my five days a week. I'm at Chick-fil-A with my daughters. <laughs> um, and uh, I mean, some of you are like, oh, it's true. We go that much. Um, whatever. Um, I was in line at Chick-fil-A, and the drive through line, like, I'm trying to explain. You were supposed to pull in here, and there was this, like, backed-up line here, and I just came in hot here. <laughs> and I was wanting in the middle of the line and kind of refusing to get out. Yeah. And I mean, person after person stared me down and just pulled in and, like, was like, I'm not letting you in here, bud. And I was like, I told my girls, I was like, see all those people? It's going to go bad for them. Something bad's going to happen to them the rest of the day. <laughs> And then Allie, Allie, my wife, was sitting there, uh, and she goes, girls, that's not, that's not how it works. That's not the gospel. She's giving them, like, a gospel lesson. She's like, no, like, grace, you know, she's so good at that. And it's like, we, we think this. We think this about ourselves. We think this about other people. We, do, we, uh, we, we have a good culture on our staff team of games. We like to play horse. Uh, I, I'm just a hyper-competitive person, so I, you know... Uh, I like to play games, and we always, like, joke, like, if somebody, like, airballs or something on, like, the Nerf horse goal, we'll be like, man, must not have had your quiet time this morning, you know, you lost, and guys, what I'm trying to show you is, like, that spirit is in us. The spirit of the older son, the spirit of religion is in us. If I do good things, God will love me and bless me. If I don't do, if I don't do good things and I do, quote unquote, bad things, and all of this kind of has air quotes around it, then God's going to be mad at me and he's, not, and he's not going to love me. But guys, that's religion. Don't miss this in the story. I don't want you to miss this in the story. The older son's, quote unquote, religious activity exhausts him. 
and it turns him into a cold and bitter and angry person who ultimately misses out on the feast of the Father. That's what religion does to us. Have you ever met, have you ever met a person that's been around the church for a long time and they don't feel full of joy, they just feel mean and bitter and like they look down on everybody? Guys, that's what religion turns people into. Church people. I think somebody just said church people. Yeah, that's right. The old church lady. That's right. Just mean and bitter. And it's like, that's what religion does to you. It makes you look down on everybody else. It turns you into a bitter person, a jealous person, an envious person, an angry person. Because ultimately, what you're trying to do is you're trying to control God, and God's not giving you what you think you deserve because of your good stuff and all that. And it just is a terrible, exhausting way to live. But in the younger son, we get a, we get a vision of the gospel that he totally makes a mess of his life. He like consistently chooses all of the wrong things. He's a total jerk to his dad. He loves money, which Jesus talks a lot about money. Jesus says more about money than heaven and hell combined. He talks about the danger of it all the time. He loves money. He wastes everything that's given to him. He sleeps with prostitutes, all of this stuff. And yet all of this leads to this place of humility in him and this sense of need rather than a sense of entitlement. And in his humility and neediness, he returns. And by the sheer kindness and undeserved grace, the, uh, the father forgives him and welcomes him home. Guys, this shows us the heart of Christianity. That whether we've been good or bad, we can't earn our salvation. It has to be given to us as a sheer gift of undeserved grace. And it's when the younger son humbles himself and returns without any sense of entitlement and I deserve this, but only need that the father welcomes him home with a celebration. This is the gospel of Christianity. This is the good news of Christianity. This is New Testament Christianity right here. It's what sets Christianity apart from every other religious tradition. It says that we are not saved by what we do, by earning. We are saved by the sheer, undeserved grace of God through the performance of Jesus Christ in our place. And that's it. We're saved not by our performing for God, but Jesus is performing in our place, that Jesus, the New Testament says, he lived the life that we were supposed to live. He perfectly obeyed God. He perfectly loved the Father. He perfectly obeyed him with joy and gratitude where we haven't. He obeyed where we failed. For our failure, we deserve death. And what did Jesus do? Jesus went and he paid this, the penalty. We deserve death. He died in our place and he was raised from the dead so that by his performance and not ours, we can be forgiven and washed clean and welcomed home by the Father. This is the good news of Christianity. And it has nothing to do with what we do, good or bad. The gospel is not earning something, it's receiving something as a gift. And guys, it's like just the most freeing news in the world frees you up. Now, I've got a lot more I want to say that, but I've got to move on because I've got other good stuff that I want to put on screen in just a second. Second, this brings balance. This brings balance. Most people have this view of God. This is kind of continuing on the reframe thing. Most people have this view of God where God loves good people and hates bad people. Like, really, that's overly simplistic, but that's how a lot of us think. God loves good people. He hates bad people. You know, good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell. But this parable shows us that there's more than one way to miss out on the grace and love of God. 
We can miss it through our, through our quote-unquote badness and through our quote-unquote goodness. We can miss it both ways. And if this story is anything, it's primarily a warning to those of us who would consider ourselves insiders in the church. It's primarily a warning to those of us who would consider ourselves more religious, more put together, whatever that means, to be careful not to use your moral goodness and religious performance as a way to control God and make him love you. One of the reasons I said that I'm not sure that like, you know, the younger son grace stuff is the main point of this parable is because of the audience of this parable. Jesus was giving this teaching not to really bad younger sons who've blown it as a teaching on grace. He was giving this teaching to really morally upright Jews as a warning. Careful if you feel like you're doing well in the religion department. Careful because God doesn't work like you think he works. We need to, we see that we need to repent both of our badness and our attempted goodness and come to Jesus. It balances us out by leveling the playing field. It shows us that every single person needs the same grace of God offered through Jesus. It's just a balancing thing. Balancing. Third counsel. Third counsel. This teaching on God and the forgiveness of God counsels us in how to live. Tim Keller pastored for a long time in Manhattan. He has a chart in his book, Center Church, that I read years ago that I've just never forgotten on uh, where he compares and contrasts religion and the gospel, and it applies it to different areas of life. So what I want to do is I just want to share this chart with you, encourage you to take pictures of this, read it every night and every morning for the rest of your life, okay? Because it's really, it's really that good. And this is not mine, this is all Keller's. Uh, but he's showing us like Spirit of the older son, spirit of the younger son. He's showing us the difference between religion and the gospel, and he's bringing it down in some, into some of the most practical areas of life. He's showing us how the gospel counsels us and how to live. So let me just walk through this quickly and tease some of this out. Um, it's going to be really small on the screen. That screen's probably going to be a lot better to look at. So religion, well, let's talk about obedience first, obedience to God. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. If I do good things and don't do bad things, if I obey God, then God's going to accept me. That's religion. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Jesus has done all of the work in my place. It's through faith in Jesus alone that I'm saved, forgiven, cleansed of my sin. I'm accepted by God, therefore my obedience is out of my acceptance, not for my acceptance. Two totally different ways of looking at obedience and how, we, and, how and why we obey God. Let's talk about motivation for obedience. In religion, motivation is based on fear and insecurity. We live really scared really insecure. Oh my gosh, have I done enough for God to love me? Have I done enough? Maybe I should do more. I'll go to church this Sunday. And then you kind of like fulfill your little church thing and, and then you miss for six weeks and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to get back there. That is not how this works. That's religion. The gospel says motivation is based on grateful joy, man. I've been saved by grace alone, through the work of Christ alone. Man, not by what I do. I just am enjoying God. Talk about a different motivation for showing up here. Not to appease some religious guilt. That's not what this is about. This is about enjoying the presence of God. Being reminded of the grace of God in the gospel. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. Remember, this is the spirit of the older son. If I do these good things, I'm backing God into a corner, and I deserve a good life. That's religion. The gospel says, I obey God to get God, to delight in and resemble him. 
Remember, the, the, two, the problem with both of the sons is they want the things of the father, but not the father himself. And what you need to know is like, man, the father gives good gifts, but the father's the best gift. The presence of the father, the presence of God in your life, leading you, loving you, caring for you, is the best gift. Religion, talk about circumstances in life, and when, when life goes south and life gets hard, uh, religion says this, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. Man, I've been really good. I've been like, I've been to church two out of four Sundays. I've been doing good. That's not good, by the way. That's, that's half, okay? <laughs> that's 50%. That's an F. When circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God. I've been better than this. I deserve more than this. The gospel says this, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle. Like, the struggle's real. It's there. The gospel doesn't take the struggle away, but I know all my punishment fell on Jesus, and that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love in, within my trial. This highlights one of, uh, like, a really insidious belief we have about God, where whenever we're living in religion world and not gospel world, that when things go wrong, we can think God is punishing us because we haven't been good enough. Um, and when you believe the gospel, all of the punishment for your sin fell on Jesus on the cross, and there is no punishment left. And so God will, there is no punishment for you to absorb anymore. Jesus absorbed it all. All God the Father has for you is love and kindness now. And so bad things in your life are not punishment from God, Okay. They're never talked like that, talk, talked about like that in the New Testament. Religion says this. Let's talk about criticism. Criticism. When I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. So when I'm criticized, I, I'm like, you don't know me. I'm better. I'm better than that. That's the spirit of religion. If when you're criticized, and I see this in myself, guys, this is in my heart, you, you bow up and you go, no, I'm not that bad. You don't know. That's the spirit of religion. Because I have to hang on to this feeling that I'm a good person. You need to know I'm a good person. But the gospel is totally different. When I'm criticized, I struggle. It's hard to be criticized. But it is not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, or even I'll add what other people think about me, but on God's love for me in Christ. I love what Ray Ortland says uh, about criticism. He says, when somebody comes and they criticize me, uh, the, the gospel response is, you don't even know the worst of it. You don't even know. You don't know what goes through my mind. Let's go to the next one. I got a few more then we'll wrap it up. Religion says this. We'll talk about prayer. Um, religion says, my prayer life consists largely of requests, and it only heats up when I'm in a time of need. Yikes. Whew, that's convicting to me. My main purpose in prayer is to control, is control of the environment and getting things. My main purpose in prayer is control of the environment. I want my life to go better, things to be smooth, and I need this, this, and this. And that's the only reason I pray. That's religion. The gospel, my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose for prayer is being with God. And it's not that you don't ask for things, but the, the goal is God, God's presence. He's the gift. Religion, self-view. Um, 
self-view stuff, my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident. Gosh, this one's so good. Man, went to church, read my Bible, doing good. I feel confident. But then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. Read my Bible, went to church. What are you doing, heathen? That's how you get. You get really proud. You get really proud. That's, that's the spirit of religion, spirit of the older son. If and when, but the other's true too. If, if and when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel humble but not confident. I feel like a failure. So you see that this is, religion is a roller coaster. Doing really good, and I get really confident, but then I'm not doing good, and I'm really humbled, and I lack any sense of confidence. The gospel says this. It just changes everything. My self-view is not based on my moral achievement. In Christ, here's a little Latin for you. Here's your Latin lesson for the day. Uh, this is from the, straight from the Reformation. It's amazing stuff. Simul justice et peccator. Here's what it means. Simultaneously sinful and lost, yet accepted in Christ. It's at the heart of the gospel. I'm simultaneously sinful and lost, yet accepted in Christ. I'm so bad that he had to die for me, and I'm so loved that he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deep humility and confidence at the same time. So with religion, you're either humble or you're confident. With the gospel, you get to be humble and confident at the same time. It's just a total reframe. Last one. With religion, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. And so I look down on those who I perceive as lazy or immoral. I've never made that mistake before, just so you know. But with the gospel, it's just totally different. My identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. I'm saved by sheer grace, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace I am what I am. Older son, younger son. Older son, younger son. Religion, the gospel. Two totally different ways of viewing God and how God relates to us. The final thing this does is it, is it brings reorientation. Ultimately, this story reorients us away from our badness and our goodness and to Jesus. <laughs> That's what it does. Reorients us away from thinking about life in terms of a giant scale. Have it been more good or more bad? And to Jesus. Because it's through Jesus that we're cleansed of our sin. It's through Jesus that we're forgiven. It's through Jesus that we're healed. It's through Jesus that we're washed clean. And the younger son, this is where we're going to come back to the younger son. The younger son models for us what it looks like to walk into these gospel realities. He models for us how to receive the invitation of the Father. This is where we go from reframing to invitation. Um, in 1663, Rembrandt did a painting called The Return of the Sun. We're gonna go ahead and put this painting up here on the screen. You might, you might be able to see it where it's a little bit darker up there. This, is, this was painted in 1663, and it gives us this beautiful imagery of how to come like the younger son and receive the forgiveness and love of the father. And so I just want to highlight a few things about this painting as we think about God inviting us in these moments back into his love and care. What you see in this painting is you get the older son, this, this character right over here is the older son to your right, and you just see all of this, uh, all of these religious realities in the older son. He's very put together, um, he's wearing great clothes, he's wealthy, um, but a couple things you want to notice about him and Rembrandt's rendition of him is that he's looking down on his little brother 
because, he, because he's just so proud of his moral achievement. He's looking down with a bit of a scowl. And ultimately, though, what you need to notice is that he's separated from the love and the affection of the Father. He's been really good. He's done everything right, but ultimately he's separated from the love and the affection of the Father. But in the younger son, we get a completely different model of how to come and receive the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. A few things you'll notice about the younger son is that he's coming in rags. He's not coming, bringing anything that he thinks is beautiful to the Father. He's just coming with who he is and full surrender. He's coming in a posture of humility. He's bent down on his knees. He's shoeless on this foot, and he's like, this, this shoe, I don't know if you can see this from that far away, but this shoe right over here is like half worn out. And he's just in this posture of humility where he's like, man, I, I don't have anything that I'm bringing. All I have is need. I'm coming exposed. I'm, you just think, you just think how much shame this guy was feeling. Like the father had given him wealth. He should have better clothes than that. He should be more put together than that, but he's blown it all. He doesn't have anything left. And as he comes back, he thinks that the father is going to meet him with, you know, lecture and treat him like a servant. But in his humility and need, he's embraced and he's welcomed into the affection of the father. And what I want for our response time today is I just want the younger son to serve as a model for us of receiving the invitation of the Father to come back into his love, to come back into his affection. I want the model of the older son to serve as a warning for those of us who feel good about where we're at with our religious performance. And I, I just want to invite us to come humbly before the Father. So whatever shame you brought into the room, whatever guilt you brought into the room, I want to just lead us in a time of bringing that before the Father, trusting that the way Jesus perceived, uh, portrays the Father in this story is true. That he's not going to reject us, but he's going to receive us. So if you guys would bow your heads and maybe you just posture yourself, hands out in front of you open. If you want to get down on your knees at your chair, you're more than welcome to get down on your knees. And I just want to lead us through the story, a time of returning to the Father, receiving the forgiveness of the Father, the cleansing of Jesus. God, I, I just want to invite you to come by your Spirit and minister to us. Everything we have is a sheer gift of your grace. And we're just coming to you needy. We need forgiveness. We need power. We need fresh perspective. We need the reframe to happen over and over again. We want to walk out of religious activity and religious performance. We want to walk into gospel realities. And so, God, would you just make this a time in these moments of coming to our senses? Like verse 17 says, 
where something clicks with us and you're like, man, maybe, I should, maybe we should just go take all of this stuff we feel guilty about, all of this stuff we feel shameful about, all of this stuff we're exhausted by by trying to prove ourselves, and we just stop, we come to our senses and we go, man, maybe we should return to the Father. And so I just want to invite you to just take, I'm just going to be silent for a second. Whatever guilt you're carrying, I just want to invite you to silently confess it to the Father. Whatever shame you're carrying around for not being the person you want to be, just silently bring that to the Father. If you can't put words to it, just say, Father, I feel guilt and shame. And right now, Father, I just want to pray that by your Holy Spirit, there would be a new sense of affection and love released over the room as we return to you. We want to return. I pray for a a release from the bondage of religious activity and the exhaustion of religious activity. Just the words of Jesus, all who are exhausted and heavy laden and carrying burdens, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. You will not find more religious advice. You will find rest. And so Holy Spirit, come. Do what only you can do. Open our eyes, change our minds, change our hearts, expose, invite in. We invite you to do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing about the grace of Jesus. I want to encourage you, you can sing, you can stay seated and continue to just be with the Father. We're also going to take communion and celebrate through communion that it's not by anything we do but by the finished work through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ that we are saved. So in communion, just remember that today. So let's stand if you want to and respond as the Lord leads us.